Welcome to the U Calgary Social Work Podcast, brought to you by, you guessed it, the Faculty of Social Work at the University of Calgary. Today's conversation is with Dr. Victoria Burns, an assistant professor with the U Calgary Faculty of Social Work and the founder and director of the U Calgary Recovery Community. The UCRC is an inclusive safe space for students, faculty, and staff who are in recovery or seeking recovery from substance use or other addictive behaviors. The purpose of the UCRC is to support campus members in recovery and to also provide a support system to family members and friends. We'll be talking about this new initiative with Dr. Burns, as well as hearing about her own journey in recovery, discussing substance use within the context of the pandemic, and on combating stigma in its many forms. Thanks for joining us. Collegiate recovery communities really seem to have taken off in recent years. What inspired you to establish one at UCalgary? So the UCalgary recovery community is part of a longer uh, tradition of collegiate recovery programs, which started in actually the 1970s in the United States. And there's currently approximately 150 collegiate recovery programs across the states and uh, two in Canada. So we are the third in Canada and it's only really taken off in Canada in 2019. The first collegiate recovery program started at the University of British Columbia by a social work professor, sorry, a social work student, a doctoral student uh, named Sarah Fujak. And um, the second one was started by a psychology professor Uh, at the University of Windsor. And just in terms of a little bit of history of the UBC program, Sarah uh, was in long-term recovery from addiction herself and was from the States and moved to to, uh, Vancouver for her PhD and realized there wasn't any collegiate recovery programs there, which surprised her because Vancouver is known to be such a progressive city, such a big university. So she took it upon herself to start a collegiate recovery program. So my story is a little bit similar, but different. Um, I have been in long-term recovery for almost eight years. So it'll be eight years in uh, November. And I got sober during my PhD, which was at McGill University. And I struggled with alcohol throughout um, my university life. Um, But it wasn't, um, it was so normalized as well, like the binge drinking culture, the partying culture, that whenever I would question my relationship with alcohol, I would often met with, oh, you're not that bad. You're just, you know, you deserve, you know, to let off some steam, you know, doing a university, especially a PhD is so stressful, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I had not actually heard of recovery communities or even recovery, really. um, It wasn't something like the movement of recovery was not something we were talking about uh, in our social work training. And it wasn't until I was in my second year of my PhD that I met a fellow PhD student who was um, from the States as well. And I discovered that he was in long-term recovery and for him, it was like a positive identity claim. He hadn't, he'd been sober for 25 years and just 
you know, that was, that was that. And he had fun, he partied, um, but he was sober. And I thought, how is that possible? Because I thought being sober would be the most boring thing. Um, I had very kind of narrow ideas about what that meant. And um, he just totally destabilized all of my stereotypes of what it meant to be a quote unquote sober person. So that interaction I had with him had planted the seed and things started to get worse and worse and worse as they tend to do with addiction. And it finally got to the point where, um, you know, I came very close to death and realized that I needed to do something. Uh, and I started my recovery journey during my PhD. And what I found soon found was that um, I was leading very much a double life in recovery. So there wasn't any conversation. There wasn't a community on campus for people like me. I felt like an outsider. I felt almost that the stigma of being in recovery was more so than being really in active addiction. Right. And so I didn't tell anybody I, um, you know, was felt often ostracized and isolated at things like conferences where drinking was a big part of that. Um, I wrote an article about this actually recently. It was just published this year about sort of this journey of uh, disclosing a recovery identity in academia. And I tell the story about how at my PhD defense, um, I was three years sober at the time and was being pressured to take the champagne and trying to, you know, <laughs> it's not seem like it was a big deal and, you know, um, refusing and people saying, you know, come on, Victoria, it's not like you're an alcoholic. And, you know, all of this stuff about, you know, it, um, pressure, right. And all these, um, you know, you normally, I would just use, um, like different excuses, right. Like, uh, you know, I'm driving or, um, you know, I'm type one diabetic as well. So I'd often say, Oh, well, you know, it's my diabetes. And then some people would say, well, I have an aunt who is type one diabetes and she drinks, you know, it's like, they say that alcohol is the only drug you have to justify not taking, <laughs> Like, you know, um, over and over again, because we live in an alcogenic society. Um, so all of this kind of led to, you know, uh, this backstory is important because it led to me uh, wanting or needing or being called to create a safe space for folks on campus who were experiencing the same isolation and um, the same stigma that I was experiencing. So when I moved to Calgary in 2017 as a tenure track professor, um, I found it became increasingly difficult to hide my identity uh, because I had students doing practicum in places where, you know, I went to meetings and um, it's a smaller city than Montreal. So I could kind of hide, you know, in Montreal because I didn't want anybody to know. I didn't want any students to know. I went to the French meetings, um, and that kind of thing. So anyway, I, um, <laughs> um, it got to the point where 
my recovery uh, and the quality of my work was suffering because of this double life. Um, Because I was also doing, I've been doing research on homelessness and addiction for over 10 years. And so it's like these conversations were coming up all the time. It wasn't like, you know, I was just working somewhere where I wasn't engaging conversations about addiction on a regular basis. And I felt like I was withholding also part of my, a part of my expertise um, as a researcher and as an educator. So I ended up uh, meeting with the Dean actually of social work and um, having a conversation about all these teachable moments and things coming up. And uh, he was extremely supportive and said, you know, I, you know, cause I was warned by more senior academics not to disclose until I got tenure. Um, so, you know, which is five years and I just couldn't, I couldn't do it anymore. And I said, look, if this is what it's going to, you know, I'll go, I'll have to go work somewhere else because my recovery is my most, the most important part of, um, you know, without recovery, there is no job, there is no anything. And it was starting to suffer. So, uh, he was very supportive. And then that kind of, that was in 2018. And then, um, I started working, uh, I applied for a grant through the campus mental health strategy to look at faculty members, specifically experiences with addiction and recovery and disclosure. And then that led to, um, realizing there was a deep need for some kind of collective. And at the time I was not familiar with collegiate recovery programs. Um, I wish I was during my university because it would have been a game changer. Um, I actually kind of came upon it through my work on recovery friendly workplaces. So in the States as well, they have these recovery friendly workplaces where, you know, there's a, there's certain criteria um, kind of analogous to the LGBTQ movement with the, with the sticker that, you know, you know, if you see that rainbow sticker, if you disclose or it's a safe place for you. So they have an emblem and you can know that your job's not at risk. If you're um, struggling with addiction or in recovery or relapse like that, a plan you'll be met with compassion rather than punishment. So I thought, well, this is something we need at the U Calgary. Cause I think people are not reaching out for help. We know that, um, you know, what um, almost so one in five Canadians experience addiction across their across the life course at some point and less than four percent actually receive help. So if you look at, you know, the university as a microcosm of broader society, we have 32,000 students, 6,500 employees like that's in the thousands of people um, who could benefit from having some kind of program. So um, based on that work with recovery-friendly workplaces, I started to get more involved with recovery, um, the collegiate recovery programs. And yeah, we just uh, applied actually for a City of Calgary grant called Change Can't Wait through the Mental Health and Addiction Strategy. And um, along with collaborators uh, and advisory committee we put together the University of Calgary so we have the director of the campus mental health strategy and Andrew Zito we have the director of staff wellness Darren Falenko director of student wellness Debbie Bruckner along with you know a dozen other stakeholders and importantly people with lived experience of addiction including faculty staff and students so our university is this program, the U Calgary Recovery Community, is actually one of a kind. 
because it's purposefully integrating programming for students, faculty, and staff, because we want to shift the culture and really reduce the stigma. And it has to start from the top. So we're really excited about moving into action. We've already moved into action this this fall. And uh, I think I, that was the first question. It was a long response, but it gives you a little bit of the background, I think, and backstory of where this work started from. And um, yeah, we're, we're in a very beginning stage, but it is exciting. And we've done quite a bit of work so far. So let's talk about stigma a bit as a barrier to seeking out help. Uh, I know there's an anti-stigma element to this project. Can you tell me a bit about that? Sure. Well, I think even things like today, having, you know, sharing stories, um, normalizing that people do struggle with addiction and people in university contexts uh, struggle with addiction and are in recovery, uh, we need to tell that story more often. We need to hear that story more often. And it's just not part of the conversation. Right. So uh, and, and there's a lot of research backing this up as well, that when people, um, you know, when there's contact with someone who has that lived experience, it normalizes the experience and it reduces stigma. And one of the one of the most difficult types of stigma often to because there, there are different types. There's the structural institutional stigma. There's the social stigma interpersonally. And then there's, there's the self-stigma. And I think that that um, is something that we don't talk about enough, but as I know I experienced it myself, like the shame, the feeling like there's something wrong with me. Like, why can't I um, just be like everyone else when actually a large percentage of people are also struggling with substances or other behaviors so not just alcohol or drugs uh, other drugs alcohol is definitely a drug I want to reinforce that point um, but also process addictions and problematic behaviors um, that we see a lot especially in younger populations around um, gambling gaming um, eating disorders is a, a really important one um, and body image issues um, that lead to very problematic uh, relationships with food and exercise often. So these are things that affect all aspects of our life. And, you know, as a, as an educator, they, you know, I'm very mindful of the impact that these experiences have on academic success and have on overall wellness and mental health. And we're not talking about it. So I think having more people in positions of privilege, um, such as myself, talk about it is a step in the right, right direction for sure. And we have seen the impact of campaigns such as Bell Let's Talk, where people share their stories of mental illness. Um, there's an additional stigma attached to addiction um, because of the moral model, which still dominates in public perception. Unfortunately, um, the disease model has. Uh, has shifted that as well, but um, there still definitely is a widespread perception that people could stop if they wanted to. Um, and, you know, we know that that's just not the case. Nobody chooses addiction. Um, it's a incredibly devastating illness and condition that, um, you know, 
me require support. And I think that that's where having um, this U Calgary recovery community and having it legitimized um, at an organizational level to, to put in policies and procedures and a prevention approach as well, it, it reduces that stigma because it's not just saying you're the problem, you need to go to rehab. We don't, as an institution, we don't need to deal with this problem. And that's been the way, right? It's, um, it's been the person is removed from their environment, but how as a, as an institution at the University of Calgary, may we be uh, reinforcing stigma in some ways around addiction or making the university not as safe a place as it could be for people who are struggling with addiction and even simple things, you know, around assuming people assuming people drink, you know, like, um, how could that possibly be alienating for folks, um, who are struggling, um, or possibly in recovery. And if a lot of the social activities revolve around, um, going out for alcoholic drinks, those kind of things. And it's not, um, it's not as though we're advocating for a prohibition, like a dry campus or anything, but I think a bit more mindfulness around, the languaging we use, um, even things like refer not using person first language, um, like, like, oh, he's an addict, or she's an addict, or they're an addict, and those kind of things, rather than a person, um, you know, with an addiction problem, um, is something like that is relatively simple to to change as well. And I mean, we see that everywhere too, though, that that use of language. So those are just a few ways I think that the stigma, um, the stigma can be reduced. And also, um, I think just more education around what addiction is, what recovery is, what it isn't. Um, as I mentioned in the first question, my answer to the first question, there's a lot of stigma around recovery. And I think that that is also something we want to debunk about what recovery is. Um, and I'll just say that recovery is an individual, it's, the way we don't define recovery for anyone, it's up to the individual to define what that means for the person. And recovery is more than 12 step programs. So I don't know if all listeners will be familiar with 12 step programs. One of the most famous is um, the popular, the original is Alcoholics Anonymous, which started in the 1930s. And it's a mutual aid group. It is, it is, um, not a paid program it's free and it's helped millions of people including myself over you know for decades however um at the u calgary recovery community we embrace a multiple pathways approach we know that you know through research there's a lot more evidence showing there's multiple ways that people um there's there's different degrees of addiction there's different ways that people can maintain or enter recovery, um, you know, and harm reduction is definitely a part of that. And um, the traditional 12-step models have been abstinence-focused, which works for some people. Uh, it does not necessarily work for everybody. And harm reduction um, is, you know, we all employ harm reduction strategies in our own life, right? Like it has this very narrow idea of like, 
um, safe injection sites or something like that. It seems like in the media, that's how harm reduction is often framed, but harm reduction is essentially, um, you know, a, a humanistic pragmatic approach. And, um, you know, as, especially as social workers, I think of that, I mean, it's, it's meeting the person where they're at and providing them with different resources and different options and choice. So those principles of choice, uh, choice and control are, are, are central to harm reduction. And, and, you know, it's not a top down approach. So it's trying to empower folks. So that's something that we definitely uh, respect as well, and uh, needs to be part of also the reducing the stigma of recovery, but also addiction. There was a headline circulating just this morning, uh, both on the University of Calgary website and on CBC about a surge in liver disease in the population that they've just discovered in the first wave of the pandemic due to alcohol consumption. Do you, do you have a sense that things have become similarly worse on campus this past year and a half? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, that's that's no surprise to me when we look at actually consumption rates of alcohol and then general population, um, they've increased significantly um, over, especially the last decade, and particularly in um, females. And um, that's not actually um, accidental. It's actually by design. If we look at the way that uh, alcohol is particularly marketed towards towards women, um, it's what Ann Dowsett Johnson, the author of Drink, refers to as the new tobacco. So um, just to get back before I get into the marketing stuff, I think the part around uh, around COVID, we do know that uh, alcohol consumption has increased in the general population. I'm a member of the UCalgary um, Campus Mental Health Strategy Substance Use Committee. And we were talking about this um, at a meeting yesterday, actually. and what some of the some of the people were concerned about actually returning to campus and maybe students had not been uh, drinking at the levels that they were because they were not in their social circles or on campus and on residence or whatever so coming back and and drinking at the same level that they used to after having potentially drunken less over the last 18 months could lead to some additional harm. So I think that that's also, you know, we're expecting there's going to be, uh, well, we'll see what happens with this fourth wave, but, um, you know, more partying and that kind of thing, because people haven't been doing it for 18 months because of the COVID pandemic, right? So we know, though, that um, in the general population there, that levels of alcohol consumption have increased, and that liver failure, as a result of that, um, there has been a, a you know, an increase in that as well, particularly in um, populations of young women under 30 who are experiencing liver failure, like in their 20s. And this was not something that we experienced, um, you know, 40 years ago. But um, just to touch back, circle back to the to the marketing piece, um, you know, you may remember, like with, with cigarettes, um, there was, um, you know, back in the in the fifties, and there was there was a, a recognition that women weren't smoking as much, right? So big tobacco was like started doing marketing campaigns around Virginia Slim cigarettes, making it look glamorous, all of that kind of stuff, right? And then they, you know, big tobacco ended up getting 
you know, a lot of people hooked. And, um, you know, we, we often forget that alcohol is an extremely addictive substance. It kills more people than all of the illicit drugs put together. Um, and um, over the last 10 years, there's been just, you know, uh, an increase, just a remarkable increase of marketing targeted to women and a particularly like mommy wine culture is a big one too, that you can't get through, you know, uh, your Instagram feed or Facebook without something about, you know, um, wine o'clock, uh, mommy juice, um, and then also the same tactics like skinny girl vodka. So for young and alcohol pops and, um, all of this marketing specifically for women and this promise of glamour and fun. Um, but you never see any marketing of what the other side of alcohol addiction and the, um, you know, incredible despair, um, and that, the fact that it's a depressant and all of this reality. So, um, part of, I think the normalizing, normalizing recovery is something, um, like calling those things out and just raising awareness about, you know, that the, when people become addicted, it's not, you know, like people of course have a role in and have agency in what they do, but we, ha we don't give enough, um, we don't put enough emphasis on the role of these larger bodies, like big tobacco, big alcohol, the messages that are constant, constant, constant and affect our relationships with substances. And I experienced it. And it's all like subconscious, right? It's not like, Oh, I'm being influenced. But if you like in your day, um, look at how many times you notice pro drinking messages and just how, how accessible alcohol is today. So, um, you know, you can go to the nail salon they, they serve you, uh, you know, they give you, what's the first thing you do menu, drink, drink menu. Um, you know, you go, uh, anywhere you fly, you, there's signs, you know, sidewalk signs with alcohol messaging. Um, I'm part of a, um, Alberta health, uh, Alberta health services has a, uh, alcohol policy harm reduction um, group. We meet, I actually met with them yesterday and we were talking about this as well, like around now you can drink in parks. So like that used to be kind of a, you know, a, a place for folks, you know, you wouldn't see it necessarily. And um, also just specifically around the alcohol marketing, um, people dr don't drink for all sorts of reasons, like uh, religion, uh, health reasons. So this, these, this kind of messaging can be alienating for those folks as well. So I just wanted to, to point that out. For more information or to join the UCRC listserv, contact recoverycommunity at ucalgary.ca. Recovery community is one word there, no dots, dashes, or underscores. September is recovery month, which makes for the perfect time to launch the UCRC. They'll be taking part in select recovery month activities. To learn more, visit recoverydaycalgary.com. We'll be populating the description that accompanies this episode with those links and specifics about the upcoming events. And that brings us to the end of another episode. Until next time, take care.